0: He has figured out a way to be invisible.
1: That's ridiculous. He's watched your every move. Hello? He's followed your every step. This February. I'm not crazy. There's more to fear.
2: Please listen to me.
1: Then you can see.
2: Where are you? From
1: the studio that brought you Get Out and Split.
2: Show yourself. Come
1: on. The Invisible Man. Surprise. In cinemas now. Certificate TBC.
3: This episode may contain content that is not appropriate for all audiences. Specifically, if you are a survivor, what you are about to hear could be triggering. If you need help finding a doctor, please visit psychologytoday.com/us/therapists. If you are a survivor of clergy abuse in Maryland, we ask that you contact Rich Wolf. The Attorney General Justice Department investigator at rwolf at oag.state.md.us, or you can call him at 410 576 7290. We believe in No Survivor Left Behind, so if you would like your voice to be heard, please reach out. Please take note of this number. 800 656 HOPE. If you or anyone you know needs help with any kind of sexual assault, please reach out to RAIN. RAIN is the national sexual assault telephone hotline, and again, their number is 800 656 HOPE. SNAP is the survivors' network of those abused by priests. More information can be found at snapnetwork.org or on our website at shadowspod.com.
4: of the committee. My name is Teresa Lancaster. I'm an attorney, I'm a survivor, and I'm an advocate for those abused sexually. I was abused in 1970 through 1972 at Archbishop Keough High School by Father Maskell. I was featured in the documentary, The Keepers, which exposed a huge sex ring at Archbishop Keough High School. I was unable to come forward about my abuse in the 70s because Father Maskell convinced me that no one would believe me, and he threatened me with his gun. Almost on every session, he would have the gun out on the table. I feared for my life. This is common among survivors. The support group Rain reports that 20% of survivors fear retaliation. That is a reason for not coming forward. I struggled with the fact that the abuser was one that I trusted and he had respect of the entire community. Survivors typically take years to come forward. The severe nature of the trauma endured, coupled with the high social positions often held by the abusers, prevents survivors from coming forward earlier. Other facts are depression. And substance abuse studies show the average age of disclosure is 52, and the reasons for the delay are specific to the individual. In 1994, when Jean and I came forward and started our civil suit, we quickly realized the institution we held our trust in would again betray us. Cardinal Keeler knew that the case was credible but he used the statute of limitations to make our case go away. Betrayal of a trusted institution adds another difficult layer onto the trauma of abuse. For these reasons, I urge the committee to issue a favorable report on House Bill 974. Thank you. Good afternoon. My
5: name is Jennifer Gross. I stand before you, or sit before you, a parent, a sister, a clinical social worker, a certified sex offender treatment provider, mother of two Boy Scouts, former diocesan coordinator of Safe Environments, former chair of a regional review board for the Catholic Church to review reports of clergy abuse. I am here today not to talk to you about what child sexual abuse does to the victims. You've heard that already but to stress to you that when a child is sexually abused by one person, it's devastating. That is one person that views them as trash and not as a human being worthy of dignity and respect. Far worse, then, is when an entire institution turns on that victim. For now it is not one person treating them with a lack of respect. Now it is hundreds. This bill before you today is not against any one institution, As previously testified by another committee member, Catholics, as far as we know, have committed only about 4% of all abuse. Shame on my church. Shame on my church for being the leading opponent to this. Shame on them. I am the direct descendant of Archbishop William Gross, who was first ordained in Baltimore. I will tell you, as a certified sex offender treatment provider who has worked in the field for 26 years, I only worked in clinical agencies that polygraphed offenders. In 18 years, I met one person who only had one victim. One. The majority of offenders had many, some up over 900. Sitting on a regional review board of clergy offenders, I once heard... Of a man who sexually abused a four-year-old boy, his 13-year-old niece, and raped an old woman in a coma. Where is that man now? Mexico. Why? Because apparently the church finds the United States rapidly anti-redemptive. How can I still call myself a Catholic? Because this is my church, too. And I will not allow it to only be represented by people. defend the undefensible. I am here before you to ask you today to protect my children. Raise your hand if you leave your children with people you know will hurt them. No one. Don't do that to my children. Open this door of justice for survivors. Open this door of justice for survivors which in turn provides safety to our children for today. Eliminating the statute of limitation exposes predators we did not know are still among us and are a danger. Please open this door to justice and protect my children, your children, and all our children. Thank you.
6: Hello. My name is David Chappelle. I'm from Ellicott City. I've been married for 17 years, and we have five children. Our two sons are 13 and 11, and our daughters are 9, 7, and 2. We attend Mass every Sunday at St. Louis in Clarksville, raising our family in the Catholic Church. I'm here today to testify in support of HB 974, which will help countless others to receive justice in court. I am proof that repressed memory is a real thing. My goal is to advocate for those who have not yet recalled their abuse. I'm 42, and last April, 2019, I recalled my abuse that happened when I was nine years old in 1986. My mind or body or God wasn't ready for me to re-experience the trauma until then. My recall process was slow, taking months to fully crystallize. I was extremely painful debilitating. I was a shell of a person. I'd write down all my memories in this book through my therapy. This book is filled with awful memories from a lost childhood. I thought of suicide numerous times over the last year. It is only because of my therapist, my medications, and the tremendous love and support from my family that I'm here today. I've been diagnosed with chronic post-traumatic stress disorder, and I'm so fortunate that my employer has been understanding of my needs as a person with a disability. Yes, I do now have a disability. Therapy has cost us over $10,000 in this one year alone, a huge financial strain. My abuser was Father Waylon Brown. He pled guilty and was convicted in 2018 to child abuse and rape of two boys in 1987 and 1988 in Savannah, Georgia. In fact, the only reason that they could try him in 2018 was because some of the crimes occurred in South Carolina, which has no statute of limitations to bar prosecution. Father Brown sexually abused me in 1986 in Gaithersburg, Maryland at St. Rose of Lima Parish. He was at St. Luke's Institute for Rehabilitation relating to prior sexual abuse allegations. He was allowed to volunteer in my CCD classes and attended church events. He was playful, charismatic, with a friendly smile, well, looking back, he was sick and sinister. He used God as a way to pray on children. Our entire community had blind faith in this man because he was a priest and he abused that privilege. Father Brown taught me special ways to pray to God, special sacraments to consume. And there was even a way you could speak to God directly by putting your mouth on a certain male private part. I was nine years old being abused by a priest, but to me at the time, it was a special form of prayer. One time, Father Brown even threatened me with a gun. I asked, why do you have a gun? He said, so I can be sure that I won't tell anybody about what was about to happen. That's when he sodomized me. I blacked out from the pain, but when I woke up, he had me say the Hail Mary prayer. I could barely speak. Later that same day, he asked me to leave with him to go to Georgia. He had to leave soon. I said, no, my family just moved here. I can't go with you. It sickens me to think now what happened Very next, in the next months, years, in Georgia and South Carolina, he did not take me to Georgia, but he took so much of my innocence. He introduced me also to another priest who also sexually abused me in 1986. He remains in ministry to this day in Massachusetts. After a time of transition at St. Rose, a new priest, Father Duggan, was assigned to our parish, and I told him about what had happened. He did nothing. I was never abused again sexually, but my mental abuse continued when nothing happened. My brain went into survival mode, and in order to operate and function as a normal teenager and adult, my brain had to suppress the trauma that I experienced. This is my sworn testimony under oath. There are many more stories to be told. For all those who have been abused, who haven't recalled their abuse yet, I urge you to support HB 974. This abuse was an attack on my faith my body, my soul, and my mind. Allowing myself to remember and relive these events have had a catastrophic event on my life and my family. However, I am a survivor, and I am starting to heal. For some survivors of abuse, part of our healing process is to receive justice in court. We deserve this opportunity because our memories are very real, regardless of when they decide to surface. Thank you for your time.
7: But good afternoon, my name is Paul Griffin, I'm the Legal Director of Child Justice, and on behalf of my organization, we are here uh, in support of this bill and we urge a favorable report. I mean, you've heard so much uh, powerful testimony that um, I think exposes the raw pain that so many people are still feeling uh, and the lack of justice that they are uh, facing right now. We, we do urge its, um, its passage. And, and um, the topic of forgiveness was brought up earlier, and it's a very interesting topic, and it's a very strong, powerful issue. That's really an individual issue. It's not something the state should be mandating, in our view. That's up to individuals to decide whether they wish to forgive or not. And with my own faith, Catholic faith, forgiveness is is absolutely um, um, urged, but also is atonement, that one must atone for their sins and their crimes. So you can have forgiveness, but still have uh, a person be held responsible. And I point to the Terry Anderson case. Uh, where he did forgive his captors, but he also sued them and um, received a judgment for $26 million. So I think that we need to keep that in mind that while he was in the forgiveness, he also was supporting people responsible for their acts. So again, we urge a uh, favorable report of this bill. Thank you.
8: Hi, I'm Kathy Myers. I'm the director of the Center for Children in Charles County, Maryland. Um, and I've been in the field of child abuse, both victims and offenders, for about 35 years. I'm going to talk to you from the perspective of an offender. If I'm a sex offender, I groom you. I make sure that you trust me completely. I make sure I groom, if I'm a sex offender, everybody around you, so that if you happen to spill the beans on me, you, you won't, they will not believe the, the victim. If I'm a sex offender, I make sure that you think it's your fault. If I'm a sex offender, I make sure that all of the systems where I work will protect you as well. I make sure if I'm a sex offender that if I'm caught, you'll allow me to resign without you firing me for a cause that would be in my record. If I'm a sex offender, I put in this wonderful evaluation if I do get caught by the people that you pay to evaluate me, what a wonderful person I am and how I couldn't possibly have done this If I'm a sex offender, I know what I'm doing. I pick my victims very carefully, and I go to places and institutions where I have access to lots of children who, if they tell on me, will not be believed, will be covered up, will be dismissed, and I will be protected. That's if I'm a sex offender. I know that I'm speaking to people in this room who have not come forward, probably about 10 to 15 just based on the numbers, and there's people on this panel who are in those same shoes as well. Please protect our victims because about 5% of cases are prosecuted criminally, and of the 5% that are prosecuted, I mean, are 5% of um, victims come forward to authorities as kids, and about 7% of those cases go to prosecution. So that is not the remedy for the victims that we're talking about. Thank you very much for your time.
9: Madam Vice Chair, members of the committee, I'm Kathleen Hoke. I'm a professor at the University of Maryland Carey School of Law. We did submit extensive written testimony that discusses some of the undercurrent legal issues that Felicia Langal, my student, previously testified about. So I won't reiterate those, um, but we do talk there about the statute of repose issue, um, the potential for false claims and why that should not um, you know, be a concern here, as well as the fairness of um, sovereign immunity and the role that that plays um, in our state, I want to address just two points and then make a, a personal uh, comment. First is um, why the criminal prosecution is not enough. And Delegate Wilson spoke to the availability of comprehensive uh, discovery during the civil process, and he's he's absolutely right. The other point is that um, prosecutor, prosecutors um, exercise discretion in the cases that they bring, and they have massively limited resources. So when they're faced with cases that have occurred in the last 90 days um, or two months or three years, um, maybe they're going to allocate those resources accordingly and not be able to put the resource on the investigation and gathering of evidence to prosecute a case that is decades old. It doesn't mean they don't care. It means they don't have the resources to do that work. Um, So that's another reason criminal prosecution is not sufficient. Um, The other issue is, um, you know, again, relates to statute of repose. It really is not a statute of repose. Uh, If you're lawyers and you learned about it to study for the bar exam, um, come talk to me because I had to relearn it for this um, bill as well. The last point I want to make is that I was born and this is personal. I was born and raised Catholic. I'm a member of the Church of the Nativity in Lutherville, um, Maryland. I'm extremely proud of my church and what we accomplish every day. What I've been taught since I was little is that the church is not a building – It is most certainly not a corporation. It is the people. This bill is not opposed by the people that are the church. This bill is supported. And we will always stand whether there is money left or not because we are the church. Thank you.
2: Delegate Conaway.
1: Thank thank you, Vice Chair. Thank you, panel, for coming in to testify. Um, In dealing with the remedy and the resources, would it Consideration be that there would be a tort, a tort claims cap for a certain amount of time, for say 20 years. You put a cap on it, like over. A
9: Are you talking about if the state were to waive its liability? That's in the proposed amendment. I understand. Okay. So right now, the state um, has protection from liability under the state tort claims act, and so there's the limitation of when you can file a claim and how much you can recover. Um, I do believe that there are amendments um, that purport to eliminate sovereign immunity completely um, with respect to these claims. I haven't had time. I saw them them for the first time this morning. Um, My point is, um, and if you read our written testimony, there's a reason to treat the state and private corporations and nonprofit organizations differently. Um, Sovereign immunity has a strong basis in our law to protect the public fisc and um, not, um, you know, not hate, uh, discourage people from exercising, you know, governmental uh, discretion, um, and that's very different than um, when we look at a corporate entity or a nonprofit entity. So there is a reason um, to treat um, the state differently. Well, what about the nonprofit? Same thing. They are corporations.
1: So you would be against them having a, a cap limitation?
9: I see nothing in the amendments or in um, this legislation. So me personally, yeah, I don't I don't see any reason to cap the damages here. Um, individuals still has to, have to demonstrate what their civil damages are, and you've heard from so many people today about what those um, damages may be. I don't think anyone here thinks a dollar or $10 million is going to cure what happened to them, um, but I don't think we should uh, institute artificial limitations on their recovery.
10: Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Mr. Chair, Madam Chair, Vice Chair, and members of the committee. My name is Ken Phelps. I uh, represent the uh, Episcopal Diocese of Maryland uh, before this committee. And although uh, my esteemed colleague will give you uh, a lot of the facts and figures, I just want to uh, speak uh, underscoring uh, our strong support uh, for the passage of this bill as, uh, as the diocese. Uh, and referring back uh, to the testimony uh, by uh, one of the earlier panels, we would really strongly love to see Maryland also earn a gold medal in this instance. Uh, as we've heard, you know, healing takes time, and in my role as pastor, uh, I could take the day relating stories that I've heard to you. Uh, two that came to mind just very quickly uh, when the uh, pedophile uh, scandal first broke 15 years ago, an older gentleman in my parish, mid 60s, came in and uh, couldn't even speak. He just he just wept, and. Um, as he left, the only thing he would say was, I had been an altar boy. He didn't even tell me where, but I knew. And this is a gentleman, I, you know, I had, I had married his daughter. I had baptized his grandchildren. And just to see, you know, his, his reaction to that. that. That was years ago, as recently as yesterday. A colleague who knew I was coming here to testify suddenly just took had this look and grew silent. And I knew, I knew. And all she could look at me and say was, you know, not yet, not now, I can't. You know, we can't go there. You know, healing takes time, but but, but but so does, you know, so does justice. And we need to remove every barrier that we can to allow that healing to take time. We, we you know, we, we need to allow it to, 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 to take its natural course, but we cannot cut off any possibility uh, that the victims uh, of this abuse will have their day in court, will have their day of justice.
11: Good afternoon. I am 70 years old. My name is Frank Schindler. I live in Baltimore. When I was in kindergarten in the fall of 1954 at the age of five, I was sexually abused by a priest several times a week for approximately six months. At that age, the ability to process and understand what is going on around you is limited under any circumstances, much less in circumstances that are painful and traumatic. And this abuse is being perpetrated by an individual you are told is the representative of God on Earth and must be listened to and obeyed. To speak out or even acknowledge the abuse is simply unthinkable. At such times, neurological structures in the brain act to shield you from those memories in part by suppressing and fragmenting them. But those protective actions themselves influence and distort your life and there is no deadline or timetable for how the brain operates or changes. I first came forward when I was 50 years old. For years I struggled with the consequences of the abuse, with the guilt and shame of being bad, and the belief that I needed to be punished. I've had to deal with depression, with the feeling that I was not worth much of anything no matter what I did or what I may have accomplished. I repeatedly questioned my right to life, doing things that ultimately caused me harm. And when years of therapy begin to bear fruit When you slowly begin to remember, to understand, to come out from under the guilt and shame, you are prevented from speaking your truth by the imposition of a completely arbitrary time limit, a time limit which protects and enables the abuser and allows the Catholic Church to systematically and institutionally abrogate its responsibility to the vulnerable children placed in their care. And then I am blamed for not speaking out earlier, for not doing what was not possible for me to do. Once again, I'm told it is my fault, just as I was told when I was five years old. And when all else fails, the church reduces the pervasive, institutionalized destruction of lives to simply the cost of doing business. But it's the survivors who pay the cost. There is no statute of limitations on the consequences of sexual abuse. Sixty-five years later, I'm still struggling with those consequences. There should be no statute of limitations on the responsibility of the perpetrators and those who protect them. When I was a child, I was taught that baptism in the Catholic Church placed an indelible mark on your soul. Indelible. No statute of limitations. Unfortunately, in my case and countless others, the marks of membership in the Church are destructive and tragic. But even more unfortunately, they are indeed indelible. I ask you to support fairness and justice for a five-year-old. I ask you to support... House Bill 974. Thank you.
12: My name is Noy Davis. I am a lawyer and uh, the vice president of First Star Institute, a child advocacy organization. I have previously testified before this body. uh, As an individual, I'm also a, a survivor of child sexual abuse. Today, I have the privilege and the honor of giving voice to two anonymous survivors. So, I give you their words. The first... I blame the Archdiocese of Maryland for stealing the first 20 years of my life. Maskell, their priest, I encountered from the age of 12 till I was 17. Drugged, sex trafficked to police. He threatened to kill my parents. He held guns to my head. I told many sisters, teachers, counselors during my high school years. I reported and filed the charge in 1993. The police lost the record. How do you live in this country? They all knew they protected Maskell. People ask, why did you wait? i told many people over the years, and I have waited for my Congress people to stand up for me. Please hold them accountable. Change America to stand up for its people. Protect us, please. The second survivor. From age 6 to 9, I was sexually abused by my Annapolis pediatrician. Whenever I saw him, even for an earache, He always insisted on examining my genitalia with his bare hands. I told my next pediatrician what happened, but he never reported it to police. Instead, he referred me to a therapist who also never reported. Last year, I reported both pediatricians to the police. But as far as I can tell, nothing has come of their investigation. I've learned recently other patients and medical professionals complained about these doctors during their careers but both continued practicing for another 15 to 20 years after I last saw them. I live with PTSD, depression, and anxiety. I've attempted suicide three times and spent at least $67,500 out of pocket on mental health treatment. I urge lawmakers to pass HB 974 and help protect those of us least able to protect ourselves. It is time to shift the burden away from victims and onto the institutions that perpetrated the harm.
13: Thank you. Mr. Chair, Madam Vice Chair, and members of the committee, thank you for allowing me this opportunity. I'm Laurel Morey, an alumna of the Key School in Annapolis, Maryland. I'd like to speak for two friends from Key who can't be here. One of them was gay and dating the science teacher when we were kids. He killed himself seven years ago. The other was the first boy I really loved. He inspired me to believe in God. But he began drinking heavily in high school, and died in a drunk driving accident at 17. We think the math teacher abused him. Ten years ago, again, I began asking questions. When I was a kid, most adults at Key knew about the abuse. I have compiled a list of 14 adults involved in the school whom I'm certain knew. The list includes the current and former teachers, department heads, a deputy head of school, the current head of development, significant donor, admissions officer, two board members, and three presidents, one of whom was a medical doctor. Sorry, three board presidents. The board, the, these institutions have the wealth and power that convinces people to be silent. Early 2018, I gave the police a list of survivors, adults who probably knew, and over, and over 20 alleged abusers. Two years, and the police haven't brought a single charge. Zilch. Meanwhile, a friend recently saw an abuser where teen girls hangs out, hang out. Another lives near a school. A year ago, I saw one on West Street. One has worked with kids in Baltimore libraries. Many still teach. Five are still associated with Key. The civil justice system must step in, or their names will never be public. We cannot rely on private. We cannot rely on private institutions. I told Key's investigators about four predators from my childhood. Their whitewashed report only mentioned two. They got facts wrong. They outed me as a police informant, a potential risk to me and my family. I told Key's school. Key didn't care. We need to give survivors a chance to tell their stories in court. We must abolish statutes of limitation, create a look-back window. Um, Otherwise, children will remain at risk. I hope the truth will stop my friends from dying of substance abuse and suicide, because I'm sick of funerals. I urge the committee to support HB 0974. Please, just do it.
14: afternoon, Chair, Madam Chair. Members of this committee, my name is Kathy Shahinian and I'm the Public Policy Director for the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland, as well as a member of the Maryland Episcopal Public Policy Network. Thank you for the opportunity to be with you today. The diocese represents 108 parishes in the state of Maryland, and we have over 40,000 parishioners, and we support HB 974. Child abuse is a national problem. Each day in America, an average of 7,800 and 83 children are abused or neglected, and five of them die as a result. In the year 2000, 3 million referrals were made to the Children's Protective Services agencies throughout our country. Almost a third of the investigations resulted in a finding that the child had been mistreated or faced a risk of being mistreated. Sadly, child abuse is a reality in our world, and must be acknowledged and understood in order for us to be intentional about solving this problem. Someone that victimizes a child should not be able to hide behind a time frame. HB 974 is about doing the right thing for those individuals that are traumatized through sexual abuse in Maryland. If a person who is sexually assaulted as a child grows into adulthood and takes too long to report his or her abuse, The abuser escapes civil prosecution. The perpetuator is free to keep stalking, grooming, and abusing children. HB 974 supports a victim's access to the courthouse irrespective of when the the crime was committed. The current laws written, defends and protects the predators. Abolishing the statute of limitations for sex crimes against children will not solve the problem of child abuse. Overnight in our country, but it will arm our society with a vehicle to protect our children. The Episcopal Diocese is serious about supporting H90 HB 974, and we respectfully request your support. Thank you.
0: Hi, my name is Vanessa Milio, and I'm the executive director for an organization called No More Stolen Childhoods. And I've spoken to many of you about this and other issues related to childhood sexual abuse. I actually just want to start by saying thank you. And this is an incredibly difficult subject to talk about, to listen to, and I really appreciate all of your willingness to be here, to stay in your seats, to pay attention, and to hear people tell their stories. That is unfortunately not something that they are used to getting. I also want to thank you for passing this legislation last year. Um, you had the institutional courage to move this out of committee into the floor of the House, and the House had the courage to pass the legislation. So I want to thank you. And I'm sorry that we have to ask you to do that again, but we do. Um, And so I hope that we can count on you to be strong for all of us uh, in passing this bill forward. I want to take a minute and address something that has been kind of flying around the room a little bit, and that's the money, because the money is a big part of this. Um, And I want to start by the number of $9 billion. That's the estimated cost in the United States of child sexual abuse. That's not my number. It's Hopkins' number. That's the cost that goes beyond counseling and therapy sessions. It speaks to lost wages. It speaks to health issues. It speaks to the long-term impact of trauma that impacts the victim, their spouse, their family, their coworkers. There's productivity loss. This is not a one-person, one-and-done scenario. This is something that we all address and we all face every single day. The second thing I want to talk about is options. We've heard a lot about bankruptcy today and a lot of pieces about that, and I want to clarify a little bit. Pennsylvania does not have a look-back window. The Harrisburg Archdiocese chose bankruptcy as an option preemptively. The Boy Scouts of America chose bankruptcy as an option for their organization. Institutions have choices. They can choose bankruptcy protection. They can choose to set up trusts. They can choose to offer counseling. They can choose to to, um, address the issues in the courts. Institutions have choices. What you're hearing today is survivors asking you for the same choices. It should be the survivor's choice whether or not they want counseling. It should be the survivor's choice while telling their family is enough. It should be the survivor's choice whether they're brave enough to face a criminal court. To be the survivor's choice whether or not they're brave enough to face the civil proceedings. We're simply asking you to put the choice back in the hands of survivors for how they heal and they seek
15: justice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Are there questions for this panel? Seeing none, thank you all very much. The final panel in favor of the legislation Mary Corazine, Susan Karen. Judy Lorenz, Lisa Jordan, Joyce Lombardi, all been in the room so far, so if you'd begin with right there, that would be fine.
16: Uh, My name is Mary Corzine, and I'm here to provide testimony as a survivor of childhood sexual abuse in support of House Bill 974. When I found the courage to come forward uh, at last to tell a teacher, multiple priests, And a therapist, this is what I heard, and it was devastating. He is sick. It's not his fault. You'll feel better when you forgive him. Vengeance alone belongs to God. At least you weren't raped. Is it any wonder that it takes decades for survivors to come forward when this is the response they receive? I tried several times to tell my parents but became very overwhelmed and panicked because I wasn't sure what would happen next. I didn't know the words to describe what was happening. I was in fifth grade when I was instructed to sit on the lap of the abuser in a darkened room in an empty house on school property. I thought he had a stick in his pocket, repeatedly poking at me. He told me to wrap my arms around his neck tightly while he talked to me. When it was over, I flew outside red-faced and crying and went to the school bathroom. My uniform was wet with an undefinable, unidentifiable white substance. I wiped it off, and I returned to class. This happened several times in the same house on school property and also in the boiler room, where I was placed across the top of a child-sized desk hidden in the pack. I told the teacher about the abuse, but she never told my parents. My abuser was then moved to a different parish. Later, in 1986, I learned an 8th grade boy had attempted suicide after being abused by the same priest. The priest, now laicized at his request, was working as a CYO basketball coach in the same archdiocese. He later pleaded guilty to four counts of sodomizing a minor and admitted to sexually abusing six other boys more than 50 times in the previous six years. A plea deal granted him immunity from prosecution for abusing the other six boys. He served nine months. He is not on the Maryland Sex Offenders Registry. It's heartbreaking to me that a person can commit repeated, constant, and calculated pedophilia in Maryland and get away with it is a perfect example of how abusers will continue to abuse until they are stopped. This bill will help to expose abusers like him and protect children in the future. Today, I'm here for them as well as myself. When victims come forward, perpetrators are exposed and children are safer. Predators depend on the statute of limitation to be able to continue to practice their compulsions. Institutions further protect abusers when they consistently demonstrate a lack of courage by protecting their institutions rather than its victims. There is hope for survivors, but without resources, trauma can seem insurmountable. Thank you, and please support House Bill 974.
17: My name is Judy Lorenz, and I am here in favor of HB 974. I'm also married to my hero, who is the last gentleman in in, um, panel two. Yeah, we've been doing this a lot. I've been here too many times testifying before this committee on behalf of victims of child sex abuse, too many times seeing bills stuffed into drawers, not making it across the street, or passed by the House overwhelmingly only to die in the Senate. SOL legislation getting sneakily transformed into a law regarding statutes of repose rather than statutes of limitation. Extra deliberation requested last year, knowing the tie-breaking senator would be deployed to Afghanistan the very next day and would not be present for the crucial vote. Enough. There are concerns over institutions that have filed for bankruptcy in the aftermath of SOL extensions. I was more alarmed to see an article in the Washington Post this week focusing on Cardinal McCarrick having paid a million dollars to an order of priests whose founder was an abuser. I know of hundreds of survivors who would be far better beneficiaries of these types of funds. Enough. I got an email last night as a family support person, but this was from a survivor. She said, Judy and David, I am sorry, but I just cannot do it. The last time I testified, it really took a toll. And even worse, I have an update about what resulted. I had been in mediation with the Archdiocese of Baltimore for counseling costs. You know, that unlimited counseling they talk about? Well, that's a farce. When I met with them, it was right after my testimony last year, and they said they were well aware of who I was. I recounted to them my story, as painful and embarrassing as it was, and gave them the receipts for over $10,000 in counseling payments I had made in the 18 months prior at $200 an hour with a doctor specialist in adult survivor issues, and this does not include the tens of thousands I had paid previous 40 years. The Archdiocese offered me a paltry $5,000, of which the attorney would take a cut. No future visit support, unless, of course, I wanted to go to a priest. What an unconscionable insult. They said they're worried too many survivors will come forward. I declined any payment from them, accepted nothing, and continued counseling out of my own pocket. If anyone is willing to read this, I'm fine with that. I just cannot do it myself. And that was from Gloria Larkin. As a family support person, I have heard the horrors of family members dealing with their loved ones, addictions, divorces, mental illness, and today, my God, again, every time I come here, I'm more surprised and horrified with what is being said. Because these people are speaking the truth. That's a rare thing in our country today. What is it going to take to make Maryland stand shoulder to shoulder with New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and other states who have already passed this type of legislation? This experience is grueling. None of us wants to be here telling our stories over and over and over, but we will until you have finally had enough. I appreciate the courage that this body demonstrated last year In passing the bill despite intensive lobbying, which you will get again. I respectfully request that you do the same and urge your colleagues in the Senate to
2: display that same courage. Thank you so much for listening. Good afternoon. My name is Susan Karen, and I represent Maryland Catholics for Action. We're a coalition of Catholics, we're lay people, uh, priests, women's religious, and even postulates who support victims' rights related to the clergy sex abuse scandal. Our leadership has abandoned our injured brothers and sisters. Our leaders have not provided the transparency and accountability necessary to ensure that these criminal activities will end. In my written testimony, I provide uh, references to two polls that were done in 2019 on U.S. Catholics. One was in The Economist and one was a Gallup poll. And they said the same thing. 30 to 35 percent of U.S. Catholics are personally questioning whether to remain Catholic because of a scandal and have unfavorable views of our leadership. It's important to know that these polls may actually be underestimating the laity concerns. This is because most Catholics have no idea what our church institutions are doing behind the scenes in terms of spending money and lobbying resources to thwart bills like the Hidden Predators Act. Our leaders often share their legislative priorities on the pulpit and bulletins and flock notes, but I've never heard anybody publicly Uh, challenge the HPA, though I've heard privately they have. As an ally group, we have heard victims share with us the stigmatizing response they have received of not being believed, judged, or dismissed, or hearing magnificent statements from the church hierarchy, which never materialize into substantive support. The cost burden of the crime lies predominantly on the victims, and if it doesn't pass this year, they will continue to pay that cost. Anyone who is Catholic should regard this scandal as an existential issue. We are facing moral bankruptcy. The laity are the treasures of the church. We provide the financial office to- tories and the hundreds of thousands of hours in charitable work. Our voices should be um, heard just as much as the, our brother bishops. I hope that you will support HP 974.
18: Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Madam Vice Chair. I'm Lisa C. Jordan with the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I've been testifying in favor of bills like this for decades. We are here this year in favor of House Bill 974. There's really nothing I can say that's going to be more compelling to the voices that you've already listened to. I do want to thank Delegate Wilson for his passion for moving the ball forward. I'd also like to point to Delegate Menace, whose picture is on your back wall up there and thank Delegate Petzold and Senator Kelly and Senator Young and then Delegate Anthony Brown and every single one of you for voting last year in favor of this bill. This is something that would eliminate the statute of limitations. So these people don't have to continually come back and have the pain of telling you their stories over and over and over again, only to have the state of Maryland simply fail to do very much. Certainly, you've passed bills in the past that have moved the ball forward, but this is a significant, important improvement to access to justice. It is fundamental to your responsibilities here as legislators. So for those reasons, and mainly for the reasons of the survivors and their voices that you've just heard, the Maryland Coalition Against Sexual Assault urges a favorable report on House Bill 974.
19: Uh, Mr. Chair, members of the committee, Joyce Lombardi from the Baltimore Child Abuse Center, I'll only uh, raise one point that hasn't been raised by everyone else that you have heard today, and that is that the um, in the 16 states that have look-back windows, uh, we hear the specter, and some of your colleagues might be talking about the specter of a bankruptcies and floodgates. We've heard that in the years that we've been doing this litigation. Uh, information from Child USA shows that that's not true. Um, in Georgia, there were, in Utah, I'm sorry, there were four claims. After their look back window in Delaware, there were 1,175, 1,000 of which were against one defendant, a pediatrician. And so we know that uh, very few survivors actually want to access the criminal or the civil justice system. It is difficult. Healing takes many forms. Um, once all this bill is asking you to do is provide those few people access to the courts. And then once you're in the courts, then memories, then they have to deal with the evidence of memories. Memories fade, witnesses die, documents get destroyed. Uh, And so this is simply for those few courageous people who can come forward. All you're doing is allowing them uh, to come forward and access the courts. And we urge a favorable report, and thank you for your support thus far.
15: Are there questions for this panel, Delegate Cox?
20: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, panelists, um, for the attorney experts. If I could have a quick, if you, if you know, under the statute scheme as it exists now, if you were to, if we were to pass the look back, would the um, sovereign immunity be waived automatically, or would there have to be
18: I understand that there are additional amendments regarding that, and I've not yet seen those. Ms. party may have.
19: No, I haven't seen the amendments, but my understanding is that the bill before you does not address sovereign immunity, and so the bill before you, the amendments do.
20: And and do you understand the, the idea behind the amendment goes with the, dele- the good delegate's experience <laughs> and why I would want to protect someone like the good delegate? Is that a fair amendment?
18: We're looking forward to reviewing it, I'm sure, and appreciate your interest and support for survivors.
15: Are there further questions? Seeing none, thank you all very much. That concludes the testimony from those people in favor of the legislation. For the committee, there are two people signed up to testify opposed to the legislation. I will say that after we hear their testimony, the committee is going to take a five-minute break to give people the opportunity who have been here with us today um, to, to collect their things, uh, uh, as we have another uh, five or six bills to hear after this. But I just wanted to kind of put that on, put that out there for the committee, let everybody know kind of where we are. In opposition, Carrie Silverman and Minor Carter.
21: Good afternoon. My name is Minor Carter. I represent the American Property Casualty Insurance Association of Liberty Mutual. Probably should have signed up with um, favor with amendments. Our issue is solely insurance. That as people have talked about monetary rewards, we all know in many cases that the incident uh, never happened except or is is expanded because of the uh, presence of insurance money. And we'd like to work with the committee to resolve that problem.
15: To be clear, you're testifying as favorable with amendments now.
21: Well, I should have said that. But let me put it this way: be actually, absolutely <laughs> I was told to come do and do it. When I, by the time I signed up, I realized when I got my testimony, we're not against the input of the bill; we're in against the inclusion of insurance. But by that time, it was by the time I thought about what I was going to do, it was too late. Not the first time in my life. Okay,
15: <laughs> sir, go ahead.
22: Good afternoon, Mr. Chairman, Madam uh, Vice Chair, members of the committee. My name is Carrie Silverman. I'm here today on behalf of the American Tort Reform Association, an organization, a uh, national organization that represents businesses, uh, associations, and municipalities here in the, in the District of Columbia. I'm a Maryland resident and, and member of the Maryland Bar. and then, um, I'm here today to um, express our concern with the approach that's taken in this bill. And before I I get into to that. I do want to to uh, express uh, uh, appreciation for your consideration of this very difficult issue, and and all the people today that have testified on this on, on this topic, their courage um, and their advocacy here. Our our issue is is really with with the precedent that this sets, uh, the type of approach that's taken here. It's not with extending the statute of limitations to whatever would be a reasonable level um, in, in, in the view of the committee. It's with the approach that's taken, and that is an approach that we haven't seen ever before in Maryland. Um, that's an approach that eliminates the statute of limitations entirely, completely for a type of civil claim. We have not seen that before. It's an approach that revives time-barred claims. That's an approach we've never seen here in Maryland before. And, and it's concerning to us because it sets a precedent for for other types of civil actions. Statutes of limitations you know, may be viewed as arbitrary. Um, they may be viewed as unfair to individuals, and in fact they, they are because they take away a viable claim. But it's very, it serves a very important purpose, and that purpose is making sure that judges and juries can decide cases about liability on the best evidence available. They can decide cases involving millions of dollars in damages when there are witnesses that are still around, when there are documents that haven't been discarded, and to make those types of decisions accordingly. I've monitored this issue and, and testified in many other states, and I'd be happy to answer your questions on whether other states have done on this issue. But the sum up of it is most states have not taken this approach. It's been presented many, many times, and most states have, like Maryland has, twice, uh, prospectively extended the statute of limitations to a finite amount and not revive time-barred claims.
15: Delegate Fisher, is there a further question?
23: Um, to the gentleman who just spoke from the tort bar.
22: American okay. Tort reformist Thank
23: please you, please. American Tort Reformists. Thank you. Wouldn't it be fair to say, though, that even though that this would be a unique precedent in Maryland, that the type of victim in this civil claim is one of the most protected class, as it's abuse during, for it's abuse of children, versus any other kind of civil claim that we'd be looking at. Maryland wouldn't be on such a vulnerable and then also protected class of a of
22: a claimant. It is a special class, um, but I, I know in my practice, and I don't represent anyone in this type of, of situation. Um, but in my practice, we deal with product liability actions. We deal with people who develop cancer as a result of a of exposure to a horrible substance. Many years later, we deal with people who who may there, there may be people who are assaulted and attacked. Uh, you know that those are also kinds of tort claims. People maimed in in the workplace by a defective product. There's all the torts. The tort law you know deals with people. Don't sue for little injuries. They sue for horrible injuries. So. There will be cases, and we're already seeing in other states, expansions of these types of laws beyond child sexual abuse to other types of claims. I
23: guess I would say even the examples that you gave, this body, and I can't speak for the body, no one can speak for the body across our colleagues across the street, but I would say that even in that, this is very different. A product liability issue, something that you didn't know that was going to harm someone, is not dealing with not only minors, which is such a protected class and a state interest to protect, and then you're dealing with something that is sexual abuse and or rape, which is something that you knowingly know that that's going to injure, cause harm, and be detrimental to someone. I I still believe that you can very much distinct this bill um, versus a claim of saying that for civil claims in the future, it's going to be a floodgate of an example that we're going to let – Dissolve the statute of limitations for other civil claims. I do think that you can very much. I think all the lawyers on this committee can see those that, those distinct differences.
15: Delegates Conaway, McComas,
1: then Griffith. Thank you, panel, for coming in to testify. My first question is: What what is the problem with the insurance issue? Oh,
21: it's it's the constant problem when you have a statute
1: beyond the statute
21: of limitations, and we already have a problem, there's a constant problem of false claims because of the insurance, uh, because you see the insurance company, you hope they're going to settle to get rid of the claim, and there uh, that's a prevalent problem in insurance today, and we think this would open up another opportunity for false claims. Okay. To,
1: the, to the second gentleman that spoke, I, I think in my mind you, you, you made the case for me because you said there's no other precedence on something having a statute of limitations, like what we're proposing here, is that right? In Maryland. In Maryland. Mm -hmm. But what I heard in the testimony actually is you're talking about, if I can say this, the murder of a child's soul, of of a person's personality, that's something that's going to change them forever. So when you you talk about a statute of limitations, this person is going to be changed forever. So I don't think there's any limit on that. Would you like to make a comment about that? I,
22: I, I understand that I, I have a lot of sympathy for the people who have gone through this type of situation. Um, I, I think, you know, in some of the other types of cases that I've talked about, I mean, there are people who have lifelong injuries and, they, and will, could also – say that, that they won't be harmed every day that they wake up forever.
15: Thank you. Delegate McComas, then Griffith.
24: Thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I'm kind of looking at this a little bit differently um, because basically the the individual doesn't kind of able to put the picture together to realize that they've really been abused until we're saying 52. And so there are different mechanisms within the law where the statute of limitations is told or, or suspended until the person discovers that, that they've been abused or, or not abused but have been injured, okay, or the person, um, let's say they get hit on the head and they've been unconscious for, you know, X years and then all of a sudden they wake up and, and they, real you know, put it all together and then they would be allowed to sue because they were, they were disabled before. So this, this isn't quite that unique in that sense because um, of that. And then you couple – I'll, I'll, I'll finish this and then I wish you to comment. Then you have, you have the situation where you're dealing with a, a, a vulnerable uh, class, children, and they might be threatened with a gun or they we say, we're, you know, we're going we're to kill your pet, we're going to kill your brothers and sisters, we're going to kill your parents if you say anything. So there's there's this duress, and so they don't have you know finally when they 52 and they kind of okay the person's not around anymore or or you know they realize that they can't kill their parents or things like that, that that the light bulb goes on. So so in a sense it's it's not necessarily really upending the tort system. It's just kind of modifying it for a rather unique situation. Um, so. Would you comment on
22: that? Sure. Um, the tort system does have some mechanisms already in place um, that that try to provide uh, extra time for people in different circumstances. Obviously, when injury is to a child, the statute of limitations doesn't run until they become an adult at least. Um, and there's also, in some cases, a common law discovery rule that might be recognized by the court that would give additional time to a person who didn't know they were injured, so, you know, something, uh, they were harmed by medical malpractice or whatever it might be, and they don't realize until years later they don't know their injury, then the statute of limitations would often not start to run until they discover it. Um, There's also, and I'm not positive of Maryland law on this, but there's usually tolling for fraudulent concealment in a case where a defendant, you know, makes, makes it so that a victim would not or, or whoever was injured would not know uh, of the injury. Uh, and if they intentionally do that, that would also tell the statute of limitations. So there are all those those types of mechanisms that are already in place here and in other states that are available. They're narrow, but they're, they're there.
20: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. This is for Mr. Shulerman. Kind of following up on uh, Delia McComas's question, in these cases so often uh, a child could be five or six years old, become much older, members oppressed, the they become aware of the counseling. It could be a young child that's nonverbal. They get older, they become verbal, they finally discuss it. You know, if you're saying um, uh, there's mechanisms in place to protect these individuals, I guess what is the harm in, in then allowing this to be codified to uh, open that window up for people that either needed to build the courage up, finally realize what happened to them, and so on and so forth to get them the, the the justice they deserve.
22: Atra's position on this is just that any statute of limitations ought to be finite, not unlimited, which which the spill has. So if there was a number that was in there, even if it was a higher number, I don't think Actus would have any any issue with that. Uh, and the second is that changes in statute of limitations shouldn't revive time barred claims, because when that happens, organizations are uh, or are judged today based on standards of what we now expect rather than what was known at the time, they may not have purchased insurance at that time to cover the claims that they're now going to face. They may not have saved the records um, of that long ago because they didn't realize they could possibly be subject to suit that many years later. Um, So, and, and they may not even know if they had an insurance policy be able to find it going back that far. So, so that's the, the concern with the retroactivity. But in terms of having more time, you know, I don't think actually would have any issue with having a longer period of time or having a discovery rule codified, but doing it, you know, finite
15: and perspective.
25: i got a question for you. Thank you for your
15: – here Watson. Uh, thank
25: you, Mr. Thank you. Chair. <laughs> I am one of the few members of, of this committee who is not an attorney, so I appreciate all the legalese. But my question is, you know, I've heard a gentleman talk about not being able to really cope with what trauma he suffered until he was about 50. But what really struck me is that uh, one of the ladies who testified said they tried to commit suicide three times. So my question, not being an attorney, if she would have been successful in committing suicide, would her family then been able to sue for the murder? since murder is, does not have a statute of limitations? Well, family wouldn't be
22: able to sue for murder because that would be a criminal action. A prosecutor would have to bring, they would be able to, well, they might be able to sue, bring a wrongful death case, which is I think probably what you're, you're getting at, um, and, and that kind of civil claim. The, I believe the statute of limitations is Maryland in, in, on a wrongful death is five within three or five years of, of the death. Of a person um, to bring a claim,
25: so, so it would take a really skilled uh, attorney to be able to link that suicide directly to the trauma inflicted on that person, possibly 30 years earlier.
22: That would be a, probably a very difficult case to make, but they, they could bring. I believe they can bring that that case.
25: Okay, thank you.
20: <laughs> thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, panelists. Um. Real quickly, I think one of you mentioned the best evidence rule, and that would be one of your concerns. Would you you be supportive of a a limitation, not a statute of repose, but a limitation that would, um, say, perchance, the life and being of the perpetrator, plus a set amount of time afterwards, so like 20 years, within a reasonable amount of time to be able to obtain evidence that may be – readily available.
22: You said that the lifetime of the perpetrator Correct. as a statute of limitations? Um, that's, that's an interesting approach. It's not one that I've seen before or considered, that actress considered. Um, it, it does establish a time frame, and it does at least mandate that you'd have a witness there, the perpetrator, that could be called at trial. So I it would be something we'd have to consider. I don't have a position I could express on it, but it does appear to provide a limit. Thank you. you.
15: Further questions for the panel? Seeing none. Thank you all very much. That concludes the testimony on House Bill 974.
0: He has figured out a way to be invisible.
1: That's ridiculous. He's watched your every move. Hello? He's followed your every step. This February.
12: I'm not crazy.
1: There's more to fear.
12: Please listen to me.
1: Then you can see.
24: Where are you? From
1: the studio that brought you Get Out and Split.
24: Show yourself. Come on.
1: The Invisible Man. Surprise. In cinemas now.
4: Certificate TBC.